You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. I have this week on the podcast a friend that I've been trying to get on for a long time, someone I've always wanted to chat with uh, here in this space. Kristen Jeffers, the black urbanist, also writes with North Carolina Placebook from Greensboro, North Carolina. Is that where you're originally from, Kristen? Yes, it is. Awesome. Um, that is headquarters right now. Sweet. Welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. I really want to talk to you about some of the things that you have going on. You've written for a long time at the Black Urbanist, which is a been a, a really great website and a really great, I think, sounding board for some of your thoughts and ideas. You recently have gotten involved with this North Carolina playbook. And wow, people tell me I'm a prolific writer. I look at the volume of stuff and the quality of stuff that you're putting out. It's absolutely astounding in many ways. Tell us about this project and how it's going. You know, when I started Black Urbanist, it was, of course, you know, like any person who starts sort of a rant city blog, you know, I, you know, went through a lot of insecurity about still being in Greensboro. You know, the whole goal was for me to be somewhere like a D.C. or New York after college and after grad school. You know, I didn't appreciate where I was. I had the opposite experience where I've been in the military and stuff, and I just wanted to be home. When I got out as an undergrad at 22 years old, I, I moved home. It's only later in my life now that I, I look back and say, why the heck did I come home so soon? <laughs> you know, you know, you go through transitions and like right now is a period of time where I wanted to be home and sort of be recentered. Now I've been home maybe about 30 days and I'm already thinking about getting out and doing something else. Sure. But, you know, just for people to think smartly about issues, first of all, issues of equity, you know, and then, you know, reading sites like Greater Greater Washington. And just at the time when I was first reading it, when it was first created, you know, I didn't see a lot of women. I didn't definitely didn't see a lot of African-American women. And I was like, you know, but what about my voice? I've had people when I first started doing it within the Black Urbanist framework say that they just didn't trust the newspapers. Right. They would only come to me to read news, you know, so just keeping people abreast of what's going on at our state house. I tell you, it's really amazing because I'm working with a few groups in North Carolina and I get your stuff and I feel like I'm in many ways more informed on what's going on in North Carolina than I am even on what's going on here in Minnesota. Uh, it's a, it's fantastic. You mentioned your inspiration too. It's funny because for me, when I got started, one of the things that I did right away was, is now the Friday news digest, which, mm -hmm. which was, you know, inspired by of all places, a sports blog that I enjoy <laughs> reading where on Friday they would just do a, a bunch of links like that. And I thought, you know, that's really great. And that's a lot of fun. The more people that read it, the better it gets because people start sending me stuff that I never would have found on my own. I've got my own set of Google alerts and my own RSS feeds, and I got my own secret little places I look for stuff. But now I'm starting to kind of get a little bit of crowdsourcing action going on. Do you get any of that? I received the press release just randomly this afternoon on the film industry and how, you know, because we actually are on the verge of losing our film incentives. 
So some organization just sent me a press release and they sent it not to Black Urban. They sent it to my other Gmail. And and so, yeah, I'm assuming they just either Googled me and they found my email, that email, and just sent me a release. I actually don't use Google Alerts for it. I um, have about eight to ten papers, some alt-weeklies, some dailies that I know I can go to and find information. Then I know there are people that blog. Sometimes I'll see people on Facebook, you know, especially when there's a national, it's the, the stories in say the New York times about North Carolina. Like I probably will have seen that on Facebook or in my glance over like the Washington post, New York times, you know, those papers that tend to sort of be the voice of America type papers. And Aaron Napastek who runs, who created the original street blog, you know, we, we have had conversations about this and he, I've been in trainings with him and he's talked about, you know, you know, when you're establishing sort of an authority site on urban planning and urban development communities and all of that to go ahead and start pulling links together. So people know, you know, that's what you write about. Right. That's what they should be sending to you. This is what this site is for. We're a resource for you. This is where you can come and learn. That's sort of the rationale and sort of the method. And yeah, there, there are people have, obviously giving me suggestions and options on how to do it. So Let me ask you something about your writing style. I know when I write, especially early on, I felt like a lot of what I was writing was in a way to explain things to my dad, who mm-hmm. has very strong opinions, uh, <laughs> thinks a lot of my opinions were not very worthy. And it tended to be maybe in a benevolent way, kind of, you know, someone who would challenge a lot of the things that I was, was putting out there. And I found myself thinking, if I can write this in a way that my dad will get it and not automatically reject it, I think I'm communicating with a broad enough cross section to make my point. How much of an influence on the actual style of your writing, you know, was your relationship with your dad? I definitely think just the storytelling element of it, you know, I come from a family on both sides of storytellers. We all have it in some degree, you know, some are more embellishment storytellers. Some of us just narrate our lives. Some of us just can just go on and talk for seemingly hours. And of course, you know, being African-American, being North Carolinian, there's just a strong element of just storytelling and oral tradition in both of those cultures, you know, as they overlap. You know, for a while, I was sort of writing Placebook straightforward. And of course, I use on Placebook, I use the editorial we just because eventually there will be a we. And then two, you know, I kind of want it to sort of be a communal type thing. But, you know, the more I share personal stories, the more people seem to connect into it. You know, the more I you know talk about things that people like, obviously, you know, you pick up a lot of your diction, a lot of your words and word choices from your parents. I was definitely not necessarily writing it for my parents. My dad would read anything I wrote anyway. My hope was that one fellow urbanist would see, hey, I'm out here and I'm, I'm just like you guys. I might look a little different. I might not look like, I'm interested in this stuff, but hey, I'm here. That was sort of the initial goal in the early days to sort of be a part of that online blogging community of people interested in cities and planning and urbanism. 
And in the latter years, it's just been just to make sure people are aware. Like, you know, Facebook is a general focus, but I do sort of see a person who is sort of in that 25 to 45 range, may or may not have kids, may or may not live in the city, who wants to be involved, engaged, who's been to college, who has a sense of humor that sort of comes from Daily Show, Colbert, watching Parks and Rec, Office, that kind of semi-dry sense of humor, a little bit of that snark that you get in sort of the online community and not necessarily hardcore, you know, always ranting against people, but sort of that wit and humor there. And then just occasionally I I love dropping in just a, a phrase that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily say outside of North Carolina or outside of the black community. You know, I, I like bringing that into it just to make things fun. You know, when I sit down and write as a conversation and especially when I'm, you know, in the full blown theory mode, I feel like, okay, the the world needs to hear this. And so I guess you could say some of the, you know, black church tradition creeps into my writing too. Where I'm like, okay, this has to get out. It has to be in a format where people can hear, people need to hear this and people need to have something to be encouraged by or apply to their lives. So let me switch gears a little bit. You gave a talk that I, I thought was fantastic at the APA. Oh, I'd like great. To, Thanks. No, I thought it was really good. And I'm actually, you know, by the time this comes out, I, I, we will have shared it on the blog. I've got it scheduled to run. I, I thought it was really, really good. I'm interested to know, First of all, how you got invited to do that. And maybe you could just talk a little bit about some of the key points you made. And what I couldn't tell from the video that was shown is what the reaction of people there in the audience were. I mean, how how was this received? Because you weren't exactly going in telling every planner they were doing a, a great job. You were kind of challenging them to think a, a little bit differently. Was that a, a message that was received? I think it was received very well. I have a hard time watching myself. I've gotten to the point where I can listen to myself, but not watch myself. But I can't remember if my good friend, and I really appreciate Malcolm for making those videos for me so people can share them like you're going to share them by the time this airs. In the first session, I'm assuming you're talking about the actual diversity keynote. Right. Correct? Yep. No, that's yeah. the one. Yep. Yeah. The big keynote. Yeah. I had a, um, a gentleman ask me about how I was going to fund it. That was the question. Okay. I was trying to figure out, so are you talking about transit? And I was like, well, I support any type of funding as long as transit happens. And our theory was that he saw the image I had of the, the Piedmont train, you know, and it's a great image. I mean, I, I snapped that picture walking to a restaurant from my apartment and, you know, the train's just coming across the bridge and, you know, they've done a really great job painting the thing. So it's a, it's a walking billboard. So maybe he was thinking about that or maybe he was just thinking about the rationale behind, you know, picking these demographic groups and, you know, talking about how we were going to plan for them. And actually it got a really good reaction, you know, especially as I was adding in some of the Virginia specific things, I wasn't sure if I went straight forward with a straightforward diversity cultural diversity talk, if that would be as well received, you know, it is still Virginia, it is still the South, you know, people hear so much about diversity, 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 you know, and it could almost beat them in the head and they don't get the real point of why we have to talk about our differences in order to find some common ground. 
So that was sort of the rationale of me going into it from that perspective. And of course, you know, I knew just me telling my story and me standing in front of people, they were going to see that there was obviously something different about me and my story. And so that's sort of what fueled that talk. Let me ask you this. This is coming from a Minnesotan, right? You know, in my little hometown here, Brainerd, Minnesota, I, I tell people, you know, we have a lot of diversity here. We have Norwegians and Swedes and uh, <laughs> some Germans. When you say something like, you know, we need to talk about our differences, it's really important. I think the average person in my community would say, oh, I'm, I'm real uncomfortable with that. Tell me why it's important that we do that. And I, I'm agreeing with you that it is, but I'd, I'd like to hear you explain why that is such an important thing that we do. You know, oftentimes when you don't talk about it, people see it and then they just get weirded out by it. They get scared. And then when they get scared, it sometimes turns into full-blown hate. And you oftentimes don't realize how much when you start talking about things that are different, you also realize that there's some common ground, you know, and then we have to just look at the food market in this day and time. You know, there's yeah. so many things that if we didn't have diversity in food alone, that we would miss out on. The first time I ran into you in Greensboro, obviously we had met each other many times before. <laughs> but oh, that, yeah, yeah. The, when you can't, yeah. That was the first time I had even, even heard of chicken and waffles, let alone <laughs> tasted them. So. <laughs> and honestly, you had the best, I mean, the That's best what I was of chicken told, and waffles. Because yeah. a lot of people try to make the waffles as thick as you can yeah. get at the the hotels yeah. and it just takes away from the food. Like you really do feel like you're eating two just awful things. Why would they even go together? Right. Yet at that restaurant, they do a good job of making the waffle seem like it's just like a, a cake. It's like you're eating a cake next to your chicken. So it's almost like you get to eat dessert and your meat together. <laughs> if you don't eat meat, you could, it could be macaroni and cheese and a waffle or eggs in a waffle, like if you just want this straight-up traditional breakfast experience. I mean, even in the restaurant itself, you have different options. And, you know, for us to not acknowledge that there, everybody has comes into the world, even if they may share, say, a racial classification, or the houses may all be painted the same color. If you go inside these, you know, sort of cookie-cutter houses, if you go inside the same row houses or the same apartment building, you're going to find all different things. And you're going to probably walk up on something that somebody else is doing. And you may have not done it before, but you might find that to be really cool. And next thing you know, it might be life-changing. Here in Minnesota, there's a, a city near where I live, uh, Long Prairie, where they have a poultry processing plant. And as a result of this processing facility, they have attracted a very large Hispanic population. Obviously, we're a long ways from you know, we're a long ways from Mexico, Central America, yet we have these very strong, really well bonded together Hispanic communities in some of our cities here in, in rural Minnesota. One of the things that I saw that people struggled with, my neighbors and people who are not part of that Hispanic community is that it felt like there was a community that was, in a sense, separate from everybody else. And I, I know just myself having grown up here, I don't feel like we have a Norwegian community. You know, I'm Norwegian descent. Mm -hmm. And to me, a lot of the hang-up was simply that barrier, 
what they did in Long Prairie was really beautiful. They started to emphasize a lot of the Hispanic traditions and a lot of the Hispanic cultural things. And they actually did a very, you know, to their credit, the people in that community did a very good job of opening it up and trying to make it very inclusive and have a real deeper dialogue. And I think it made the community part a little less threatening. How important is it if you are a racial minority or if you are a part of a disadvantaged population to have a community that you're part of? And why would someone maybe like me who doesn't have that type of cultural association necessarily, what should I understand about that type of a community relationship? You know, it's something like that I like to call uh, shorthand. And I was able to um, have a meal with someone, uh, you know, not too long ago. And we were able to connect on a level. Like, there's just certain things because you have shared interests and shared culture. And it's not just, you know, racial, but, you know, say religious or, you know, say I ran, if I was in New York and I ran into somebody that's from North Carolina and we just talked about how awesome Bojangles, Chick-fil-A, certain barbecue places were in sequence and just by mentioning the name of it and just even though all these places sell chicken you know the the levels of chicken and just it's just shortcuts and then a lot of times you just want to be able to go somewhere and feel like you're not different you know it's great to be different sometimes but you also have to affirm that you're the same in certain ways so I feel like that's sort of why, you know, you hear people talk about, well, you know, we've spent all this money, all this time getting everybody to be come together and, you know, we're a melting pot now. Why can't everybody be the same? But in certain respects, you know, we because we are different, you know, being able to find some commonality is good. You know, say even with men and women, you know, when women are able to kind of have their time and men are able to have their time and that, you know, the relationships you get by just being with people that are the same as you, it almost sort of makes when you go out and be different and be amongst different people, it sort of makes your relationship stronger. You feel better. At least I feel better when people ask me questions about, you know, who I am and what I am and why I do certain things, because I've had that time where I'm just myself and we're just shooting the breeze and, you know, we're just sort of using that shorthand to kind of communicate and, you know, being able to share jokes and shared experiences. And, you know, you even see it in like age cohorts. You know, I'm running to somebody who, you know, remembers growing up on 90s Nickelodeon and we can just talk about all the shows and, you know, what it felt like to see them as a kid and just things like that. So, you know, you take that and you apply that back into sort of the cultural sense, the racial minority cultural sense. It's the same thing. You know, it's just cultural touchstones, the shared experiences. It's having that chance to just sort of know and feel and not have to necessarily convey it via voice or explain what's going on. So I do feel strongly that it's those communities, you know, the overlapping communities within our communities that mm-hmm. really are the, the strength of our places. And when we talk about strong towns, uh, we sometimes get into, you know, that aspect of it. And I think it's one of those that is not very well appreciated when a large Hispanic population moves to a city that didn't have a Hispanic population. I get how there's a little bit of defensiveness 
amongst mm-hmm. some side, you know, th- there's you and you're different and, and we're here and we are different. Yet there's a lot of common ground that I think people can find. What's the trick to opening up some of those dialogues amongst different groups that maybe, you know, whether it is age or whether it's economic affluence or whether it's race, what are some of the ways we open up those dialogues? And specifically, I think for, for planners and people who are trying to engage multiple populations, what's the key approach in your mind? I definitely think you have to be willing to listen. I mean, obviously, there's certain things and certain places you shouldn't go in conversation that are just going to be deal breakers. But even in those senses, you have to forgive. Like if you see a person who's doing a good faith attempt to understand you, who may ask awkward questions, they may reach out and touch things they probably shouldn't. And, you know, just to be able to forgive them from where they are as you see progression happening. Now, if you run into a person and it's obvious that they're taunting you and there's no sense of them wanting to learn anything better or learn how to be better, then you sort of pull away from that. You know, and then back to sort of just the shared communities and people coming in and, you know, the the gentrification calls and all of that. You know, I think it's so much that a lot of the identity it's tied into the community itself, the design of it. In a way that's, of course, one tenet of new urbanism is that design is a major part of how people engage their community. So, you know, all of a sudden you had a corner store that sold, you know, say if you, if it's a, a Caribbean community, they sold plantains. And then all of a sudden, you know, a person walks in, sees itty bitty swollen up bananas and wonders why the bananas that they had in their old community aren't the same bananas, claim that these bananas are awful and they need to stop being sold. All of a sudden, the plantains are gone and they're regular bananas. And so it's like they can't accept the fact that maybe bananas and plantains can be sold at the store. That's the key thing is to allow for different things. You know, allow a space for some uncomfortable space, you know, forgive and forget, move forward, knowing that the intent is pure. And then also just being able to know when the intent is not pure and you just have to disengage. But for people who are designing communities, who are planning, who are who their job is to facilitate group interaction, it's that piece of making sure that opportunities are there to share and that opportunities are maintained. And then if you say you want to change something up, if you want to get rid of something, then it's it's something that's mutually agreed upon. It's not a thing of, well, we're knocking down this house because it's a nice store because we think it's we've we've arrived past whatever this house is, or even if it's not a nice store, it's just a smaller house than what's already there. You know, the idea that the small house is bringing down all the big houses or whatever, right. you know, just things like that, but just being able to accept that differences are there for a reason and they're not necessarily the end of the world. So, One of the things that we're going to talk about at the national gathering in September, because it's, it's one of those issues that I don't feel like I fully grasp and understand. And we certainly at Strong Towns don't have a well-refined kind of set of talking points to talk about it. And I'll use the term gentrification, but I don't really like, I mean, I think there's so much more than that. Mm-hmm. When I look at a, a neighborhood that is stagnating or in decline, 
I reflexively think that if we can make good, solid investments in that neighborhood, not, not things that are disproportionate, but things that are incremental in terms of their development, that we're improving things. Yet there's a whole other reaction to that that comes from people who are, you know, living within those neighborhoods and living within those communities. How do we start to understand that? And how do we start to find a way to improve people's lives yet not leave people behind? I would definitely say, you know, you know, real estate is definitely a business. And I think because real estate is a business, people, you know, feel like that dollar amounts and values have to be pushed on that. I definitely see it in the rental market. It seems like people are just trying to get as much as they can out of the rental market. And I think we need to stop and realize that things like markets, like a home, shelter, you know, basic shelter, basic um, food and everything, honestly, is a, a basic need. And keep that in mind. It's, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a, a capitalist society, making money. But when it gets to the point where, you know, there's so many people who are left behind and it's to the point where you've got a whole class of people can't participate in the greater economy because you've sucked so much out of them in the housing economy or in food or in production of goods or gas, oil, you know, even with, you know, transit systems that don't it reach everywhere they need to reach to or they are geared too much towards commuters and not toward certain commuters over others. I think when we when we develop in the future, we have to realize that, you know, all voices are valid. Even the kind of the crazier ones, the people that seem the most angry, I mean, those people probably care the most in some ways. You know, we, those of us who go to school to plan and to develop, sort of get taught a classical way of doing things and creating a process. But I definitely think that, you know, we should in good faith try to incorporate things. We should in good faith try to allow people to stay in place. You know, if you're dealing with someone who bought their home 40 years ago, it was paid off 40 years ago, yet, you know, they're getting hit with those property taxes. You know, we need a tax system. We need a way to generate revenue. We Obviously, we're going bankrupt because we've not thought about how we spend money in cities and how we, what the things we spend money on. You know, we've had so many people that view city government as cash cows, you know, leaders who feel like, oh, well, this is free money. I'm going to just use it for my own good and not, you know, actually be for the people. Coming back to it all, I definitely think you have to be cognizant of the fact that people should have the right to live you know, have the right to choose, but also just reasonable choices. And, you know, policies that, you know, of course, we're we're reeling from the policies of, you know, say redlining and, you know, certain neighborhoods being labeled. And, you know, you look at Chicago and how they, you know, certain people aren't even allowed to completely ever own a house. Right. You know, they were sort of trapped into renting for the rest of their lives. I think we forget this, that because it, it's hard to process in the year 2014. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And thankfully, you know, certain that that's not obviously Fair Housing Act has banned a lot of that. But for some people, you know, they never were able to overcome that. That's years and years of, 
you know, people not being able to do that. And even it's mirrored again in the foreclosure crisis. You know, you get people hyped up over having a house, say they can have it. You know, the next thing you know, the interest rates are climbing. And, you know, certain people can look at the fine print. But when you have to have too much fine print, then what are you really doing here? You know, why are you making it so hard for somebody to have something of their own when we know that, you know, at least in our society, ownership is, you know, sort of preferred and sort of revered. You know, if we weren't such an ownership society, if we were more of a sharing economy, then, you know, sharing would be revered. Right. The planning profession tends to fall back on process Mm -hmm. when they're faced with issues like this. What, what kind of thing is lost in the process reaction? You know, the process reaction to me is, is a lot of, okay, we don't know what to do. We want to be fair. And in a bureaucratic kind of sense, the way we're fair is to follow a fair process. But there's some outcomes that aren't necessarily fair that get lost there, isn't there? It is because you have, the, I think, with the planning process, because there's so many provisions built in, you know, you need provisions. You know, I'm glad that we test the environment to make sure that we're not doing damage when we put in rail lines or when we add, you know, new homes or everything. But sometimes when you see the process and the end point and you see what comes out of it, you're like, well, did they really do the due diligence or they just went back to process? You know, are we helping people with the zoning code or are we just, you know, doing what we've always done? You know, are we just hiding behind that? And who gets to have variances? You know, how are variances distributed? You know, right now we're looking at a situation where they're allowing a developer to close a street down. Now, granted, the um, the street grid itself had already been terminated, but it's still just the idea that all you need is a bunch of money and you can just start closing streets down. You know, that sort of sets a precedent that's not necessarily good. Why can't you use your air rights? Why can't you just build straight up? Why does the street have to be closed? Why does a public space have to be yielded? You know, it, it gets into, you know, eminent domain in certain situations. Eminent domain hasn't always been applied fairly. And, you know, nobody feels like they get their just due when the government has to come and take their house. Let me ask you this. Andres Duani really taught me something. I mean, he's taught me a ton of things. Uh, <laughs> but back in Hurricane Katrina, he talked about how during the kind of rebuilding effort that a, a lot of the programs and a lot of the people that came in wanted the people of New Orleans to live, and his exact terms were, like Minnesotans. And mm. I, it kind of perked my ears up. And he talked about how, you know, we looked at having a mortgage and uh, having a nine-to-five job and, and having a lot of the things that for maybe us in a Minnesota culture or a Midwest culture or what have you is a very kind of normal part of your existence. Yet this wasn't the culture of much of New Orleans. Much of New Orleans was... You know, as he would say it, based on a culture more of leisure, where you would own a home because your family had owned it for generations, and you had built it kind of slowly and incrementally over time. Now, the idea that, yes, you've got a new home, great, but you have a mortgage, and you never used to have a mortgage, uh, mm -hmm. kind of impacts people's lives. How much of that are we just maybe unaware of or or unintentionally through good intentions, maybe destroying a, a lot of things that are really good in our culture today 
because we just maybe don't understand them. I mean, I, I don't think the people going in to help New Orleans were trying to destroy New Orleans culture, but they maybe just didn't grasp it the way that someone who is there obviously would. Yeah, you know, you kind of have to understand the cultural element. And, you know, when I gave my APA talk, I almost started out with that, you know, how everybody just sees land differently. And, you know, a lot of that is based on culture. You know, in Europe, you know, people had, you know, just land passed down to them and, you know, it had to be deeded to them. And there's titles based on land versus, you know, a traditional nomad situation of tribes and how, you know, the it wasn't necessarily the land. It was a, a massive amount of land, but, you know, people knew how to move around and adapt to it. The thing is, there's just so much, if you're used to having something and it's taken from you, there's an adjustment there. You know, it may or may not be a good thing that you now have a bigger, a a nicer home. But if you're not used to something, there is going to be an adjustment period. You know, as a rule, you can't always compare yourself to other people in other situations. But, you know, and human nature just naturally does that. And so you see someone doing something a certain way and you don't understand it, oftentimes you want to make it the same. Or if you see someone and you feel like you need to get to that level, you're not to that level yet, then you're going to say, I I need to have that. And, you know, when that applies back to the home owning and land owning culture, you know, if your area, your area of the country, or at least our country has been, like I said, Louisiana, you know, the it's, it's pattern of colonization is different than the pattern of colonization on the East Coast. You know, on the West Coast, you know, that, that whole area was different. You know, the whole idea of Wild West and Manifest Destiny versus, you know, we're happy where we are, we have what we need. And, you know, obviously, you know, the people who are already here and people who are coming and just this tension that goes on. And, you know, I don't know how much people realize it's a worldwide tension between who is sitting on certain plots of land. It's it's something that's always constantly evolving, but I think as someone who considers planning and who works with, with people to determine how they want to use land and how they want to manifest the community, you know, it's worth just seeing how just sort of the majority public will is in an area. You know, you can make things work being on your own. You can sort of make things work having your own sort of mindset, but and I think especially in this day and time has to be willing to be able to migrate and be able to recreate what you had somewhere else and be willing to change, but also know when it's appropriate to keep what you have and promote what you have and just highlight that as a valid part of, you know, just life in general. You know, people kind of gravitating towards tiny homes. Well, in Louisiana, you know, New Orleans, they had the shotgun home. I mean, that's a perfect model of one versus people going to McMansions and losing them. And, you know, say, I'm sure in the Victorian era, people thought may have thought those homes were McMansions, but we love them now. So just perspective, really. Let me ask you this. One of the things that I've thought, and this is really a theory on my part, not part of hard evidence. But I've thought that one of the ways we can best 
ensure that we're not leaving people behind or that we're doing the best job we can of including everybody in what we've called, you know, the transformation of America, a, a different kind of pivot point that we're being forced to go through right now is that we focus on growth that is incremental. So instead of taking the block of single family homes, tearing them down and building the six story condominium unit, uh, we look at that block of single family homes and say, how do we get an accessory apartment on each? And once we have a block of single family homes with accessory apartments, how do we turn those into duplexes? And then ultimately, how do we turn those duplexes into four units? And how do we then turn the four units into, you know, three story buildings? In other words, there's a certain incremental approach that while not efficient from a builder standpoint, is really a, the way that people built cities for thousands of years. They, they built mm-hmm. them slowly and incrementally over time. I'm asking you to react to a theory, but my theory is that if we built more incrementally, that we would, maybe because the waves are less when you're building incrementally, we would, you know, not be jettisoning as many people from our neighborhoods and, and could actually do a better job of I- including people as our communities continue to mature and grow and, and get really the investment that they desperately need. Do you think that's a, a viable thought to pursue? Oh, yeah. I definitely think, you know, you think about years and years ago when people wanted to build a house, they called the whole community and say, hey, we're going to build our house today. Let's get cut trees down. Let's raise a barn. Let's raise a house. And, you know, the community was involved in the creation of another building. You look at small town America, whereas, you know, people knew, you know, a person might move there and they're the doctor and they're the town doctor. You know them. And unless you have a really big problem with them, you have no reason to kind of move away from them. If communities are engaged and involved and see that there's a positivity involved in the change, then it's better And if they can see that things aren't changing so much, you know, a lot of people can't handle change. And, you know, when you do things slowly, especially when you build slowly, it makes people give them, gives them a chance to get used to what's going on and sort of find a way to sort of connect to it for themselves versus, okay, well, they show up and all of a sudden there's a a field that's completely clear cut, you know, maybe you use that field for just hiking and exploring, you know, maybe you used to camp out in there, you know, you would take the kids and that would be like your little campground that's right around the corner from your house. Now all of a sudden there's going to be a new neighbor there. I hear the urban renewal stories and they just make me cringe. I mean, can you imagine people oh, yeah. showing up yeah. and saying this whole neighborhood is gone? The place you went to school, the place you went to church, the store on the corner where you met your, you know, your wife or whatever, it's, it's all just going to be gone and we're going to put something back better. You hear those stories and they just rip your heart out. They really do. And of course, when you have these urban renewals and the the transition doesn't happen immediately, when you just have the empty plot for years where there was once a community and maybe it wasn't a community that looked the way you wanted it to, or maybe you just thought, well, we were getting better, but you just never got better. And it really is just, like I said, for me, it's just seeing those empty lots. And, you know, obviously, you know, people were trying to, even before, you know, some of the um, civil rights turmoil, you know, where you have neighborhoods that were just burnt out and gutted, 
But before then, when it was just, oh, well, you know, like you look at, say, Southwest D.C., where there was a community, where there were people there, and but the idea was that the federal buildings, which now, you know, with, especially there's been talk of the FBI building being uh, torn down or, you know, at least abandoned, you know, then the FBI campus being recreated out somewhere else in the D.C. Um, metro area. And just the fact that that was something there and it was gone. And, you know, what was replaced wasn't the greatest. I mean, yeah, it's, you know, we, we're used to it now. We we have adjusted to it, but, you know, that whole aspect. And then in Raleigh, one of my favorite places to go was Cameron Village. And I recently learned that Cameron Village was actually built on top of an African-American village, Oberlin. That's why if you drive through Raleigh and drop out of Cameron Village, if you get the next time you get to Raleigh, that area, that's why it's called Oberlin. And there's still a couple of black churches that are there. There are a couple of homes that are like right up on the road itself. And you're like, wow, you know, I love this place. I love this new Cameron Village area. Of course, it's become a magnet for, you know, sort of a new urbanist sensibility. They've built two brand new large apartment complexes, almost like you're seeing in, you know, D.C. area that just have shown up on the on parking lots all of a sudden, but you're like, wow, you know, you you almost can't escape in some respects. If you live in the modern city, you know, there's always going to be something that you enjoy or know about. And it replaced something that was already viable and vibrant and it took away from somebody else. And you almost can't even think about what you left behind, but you kind of have to, because if you don't think about it, if you don't acknowledge it, then you'll turn around and say, oh, well, we're going to do it again. You know, we'll, we'll just tear this down and people will be happy and eventually it'll shake itself out. You know, there are plenty of places that have been abandoned because not every business makes it. You know, there are plenty of people who die and the homes are just there. You know, you could take that home and make something out of it or change up the neighborhood. And there are plenty of places that are, you know, just getting back into the idea of a f- actual form-based code. You know, there are places that you know, support, you know, larger homes. There are places that support smaller homes. There are places that support the sort of alternation, sort of the hodgepodgeness of it. Being able to have something side by side, being able to have a bodega next to a Urban Outfitters or sure, Whole Foods sure. or whatever, you know, right. just just being able to have the differences in types there and not feeling like you have to bulldoze to get it, not feeling like you have to cut down to get to the next step, but to be able to just over time add different things. But then also when you add, just add to the character that's there. You know, don't don't be that random row house that's like ten stories taller than everything else in that DC neighborhood that popped up. You know, right? Be the row house, but you know, just sort of be sensitive. One last question I want to ask you, just specifically about Greensboro. Before I went there a couple of years ago for the first time, Greensboro was not really on my radar at all. What a gorgeous city! That's my reaction. I know you like it as well, but I, I want to know what you really think about the prospects for Greensboro. Is this a city that you think is is on its way up? Is it struggling to find its way? Where is Greensboro in the national equation here? I definitely think we have the ability. The main thing we need to 
continue to do is to allow for new business. You know, I think for a while we were sort of insular. You know, we're, we're fairly large. We're, we're getting closer to 300,000 people. And that's been based on just we've been a refugee resettlement community. We've been very heavy-handed in how we've dealt with business over the years, you know, especially after the – even in the time from the, the mills and the, you know, just – it, we've had insurance and all these different companies that were operating here. And, you know, for a while they were operating in favor of themselves. Now you have to operate in a new economy where people have different ideas and different ways of doing business. You know, there is hope. We have a new maker space. We have a new co-working space coming. You know, we have the big aviation sort of big business cluster. We're building a big university campus. We're investing in a performing arts center. We're doing major city parks. We've had the baseball stadium now. It's coming up. Well, pretty soon now it'll be 10 years old. You know, we've done these mega projects. And, you know, our stadium is probably one of the few stadiums that's paid for itself. That just doesn't happen. Same with art centers, same with convention centers, not all these things. Big projects pay for themselves. The thing that, you know, we need to remember as being Greensboro is that, you know, there's opportunity as long as we allow for people to come in and sort of do what they do best. Be willing to let people come in and take the storefronts and just do what they need to do with them. Don't laugh off business ideas. Don't make it hard for people to feel comfortable in their own skin. And, you know, we're, we're a very friendly place. We are, people do help each other. People do know each other. But I think what we need to realize is that we need to continue to allow for diversity of business. And I think we're seeing that even with the street closing and that development and that, that whole project, we also have a grad school classmate of mine is opening a brewery. And I mean, you're talking about people in their late 20s, early 30s who are opening another brewery. This, And then there's going to be an, an expansion restaurant of a very popular restaurant owned by a fairly youngish person. To me, they're not necessarily tied into the you know, quote-unquote traditional development community, yet they're taking this old appliance store and it's going to be a, another extension of a restaurant and a brewery. And it's going to be across from the organic food store and apartments that sort of the legacy, uh, legacy developers built. So, you know, as long as we can have that, the big mega projects exist peacefully with the smaller projects and continue to realize that we are a city and being in a city does mean diversity. When we can get to the point where East Greensboro is not so underfunded, so out there and just under underutilized when, you know, the, both state universities feel like they're on equal planes those types of things. And, you know, every city has their struggles with equity issues, but continuing to push forward and doing things one thing, one step at a time forward to make sure that everybody can feel comfortable and better. I definitely think Greensboro has an opportunities. I definitely think we're not going to be in the shadow of Raleigh and Charlotte for too much longer. You know, once the Salem is paired with us, um, now, with High Point, they do need to take a look at what they're doing and realize they can't be so restrictive and so stuck on one business. You know, look at Detroit and how one business has almost taken a, their economy out. You know, you have to be able to be diverse. You have to be willing to let people do what they do and also, you know, provide economic opportunity and opportunity for them to sort of live 
the traditional American dream if they want it, and then, of course, the new place-based American dream. Right. That's beautiful. Kristen Jeffers is online at ncplacebook.info and theblackurbanist.com. Your Twitter handle is The Black Urbanist? At Black Urbanist. There's no D in it. Okay, at Black Urbanist. And I know you're on Facebook as well. Kristen Jeffers, thanks so much for taking the time. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. This has been great. And of course, I look forward to being there in Minneapolis, whatever's going on around me. That's definitely still on the calendar. So I tell you what, we're so thrilled to have you and, and we're going to have a great conversation there. You take care. All right. You too. All right. Thanks, everybody. And thanks for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. that America's one big pothole right now. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah. America has a proud tradition of a free and independent press, but it has always been a fight. Back in the 50s, newscasters like NBC's John Cameron Swayze were introduced like this. Sit back, light up a camel, and be an eyewitness to the happenings that made history in the last 24 hours. The Camel News Caravan presents Today's News Today. Produced for Camel Cigarettes by NBC. Top story this evening. <laughs> Americans' life expectancy is still 45. <laughs> That's camel smooth. <laughs> <laughs>